Lord, we thank you for the abundant blessings that we enjoy coming from your hand every day. We pray that you would open our eyes to help us see those things and to see our life, all of our lives, in, in light of the blessings that we enjoy. Thank you for the providence that you display towards your people, the way you take care of us. Thank you for the, the little things, but above all, we thank you that we have an eternal hope in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray tonight we would glorify him as we discuss his word, that we would be faithful to his word, and above all, Lord, you would teach us to be obedient. We ask that this Bible study would be good time spent together and that it would change us for the good, that we would learn to be people that bring greater glory to you because of what we learned tonight. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn to Hebrews, the ninth chapter, which I will complete tonight. We will get through the end of Hebrews 9, and if we get to the end of our time together and I haven't kept that promise, I'm just going to keep right on talking, because I'm going to get through Hebrews 9 tonight. I'd like to read the entire chapter. I'll probably read rather quickly, so we don't take too much time doing that, but I do want to put the whole thing in perspective and lay it before us again this evening as we study the ending verses, probably the last ten verses is what we'll tackle. Okay, Hebrews 9, beginning at verse 1, and I remind you, you're hearing now God's word. Now, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and its sanctuary, a sanctuary of this world. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the first, wherein were the candlestand and the table and the showbread, which is called the holy place. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense, and the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was a golden pot holding the manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and above it cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, of which things we cannot now speak in detail. Now these things having been thus prepared, the priests go in continually into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the services. But into the second, the high priest alone, once in the year, not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Spirit, thus signifying that the way into the holy place had not yet been made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing, which is a figure for the time present, according to which are offered both gifts and sacrifices that cannot, as touching the conscience, make the worshiper perfect, being only with meats and drinks and diverse baptisms, carnal ordinances imposed until a time of reformation. But Christ, having come, a high priest of the good things to come, through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, nor yet through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood entered in once for all into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling them that have been defiled sanctify unto the cleanliness of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish unto God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is the mediator of a new covenant, that a death having taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they that have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be brought in the death of him that made it. For a covenant is of force over dead bodies, for it does never avail while he that made it lives. Wherefore, even the first covenant had not been dedicated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses unto all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded to you word. Moreover, the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry he sprinkled in like manner with the blood. And according to the law, I may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And apart from shedding of blood, there is no remission. It was necessary, therefore, that the copies of the things in the heavens should be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ entered not into a holy place made with hands, like in pattern to the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear before the face of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entered into the holy place year by year, with blood not his own. Else must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world." 
But now once, at the end of the ages, has he been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been once offered to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time apart from sin to them that wait for him unto salvation. And thus far the reading of God's word. We're going to begin our study this evening at verse 18 and jump right into the discussion. I will not do any review as I have in the past, just to make sure I keep my promise of completing the chapter. Notice after our discussion, though, of verses 16 and 17 and the controversy over how to interpret the language of diatheke. Do we have a last will and testament being referred to here or a covenant? And I took what is the minority position in the Christian church, but the one which I think logically and exegetically is really demanded. I took the position that the author is still talking about a covenant. He doesn't get out of covenantal talking for two verses and then jump back into it, just kind of going back and forth. But Given what the author has said there about the covenant and everything preceding, verse 18 says, Wherefore, even the first covenant hath not been dedicated without blood. God's covenants, you see, are inaugurated with blood. And I want to emphasize that, with blood. Tonight, we're going to be doing a theology of blood. We're going to have to understand this because the author is going to keep driving this home. Blood theology. God's covenants are inaugurated with blood. The word used there in verse 18, my translation says, has not been dedicated without blood, is the same word you find in chapter 10, verse 20. And in chapter 10, the 20th verse, we read, by the way which he dedicated for us a new and living way, or inaugurated, a way which he opened up for us. And so God's covenants are opened up or dedicated, they are inaugurated with blood. But, of course, with blood is an elliptical expression. That is to say, it's to be drawn out. With blood actually means with blood shedding. Covenants are inaugurated or dedicated with blood shedding. And blood shedding is just a very graphic way of speaking of what? Death. Thank you. We get that, of course, uh, very, if, if it isn't obvious enough just by looking at the expression and the concept, verse 15 says, and for this cause he's the mediator of a new covenant that a death having taken place. Um, verses 16 and 17 talk about the necessity of death and covenants being um, over dead bodies and so forth. And so we get in the author's thinking to verse 18, the author's saying covenants, God's covenants must be inaugurated by death, by bloodshedding. And the kind of death that the author is envisioning here is not just any death, accidental death or suicide or what have you. It must be sacrificial death. And again, verses 12 and 13 support that discussion of uh, through his own blood he entered in in contrast to the blood of goats and bulls. And then uh, verse 14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself form of sacrifice? that we might serve the living God. And verse 23 makes it very clear. It was necessary, therefore, that the copies of the things in heaven should be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And then verses 25 and 26 again talk about uh, Christ offering himself and um, at the very end of verse 26, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So what I'm trying to drive home here is that God's covenants must be inaugurated by blood, which means bloodshedding, which means death, and in particular, sacrificial death. It takes a sacrificial death to be in covenant with God. And so in short, the author, having done all this really, or this is some of the most complicated theological argumentation in the New Testament, and that's why it's taken so long for us to wade through it. But in short, what the author is observing is that a sacrificial death is essential to establishing a covenant relationship with God. And then he says immediately then in verse 19, even when the first, having said even the first covenant was dedicated with blood, he illustrates this, for when every commandment had been spoken by Moses unto the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet and uh, sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded to you, word. Blood theology. No covenant without blood. That's what he's getting at. There must be bloodshed. There must be a sacrificial death 
to be in covenant relation with God. And he illustrates that from what took place at Mount Sinai. Now, the ceremony at Mount Sinai is found in Exodus 24, and for reasons that will become apparent in a minute, I think we have to take the time to read that. I, could, I will summarize it for you, but let's read it first. Exodus 24, verses 3 to 8. Israel is at Mount Sinai, remember, and now beginning at the third verse of chapter 24, and Moses came and told the people all the words of Jehovah and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which Jehovah hath spoken will we do. And Moses wrote all the words of Jehovah and rose up early in the morning and builded an altar under the mount and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto Jehovah. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people, and they said, All that Jehovah hath spoken will we do, and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which God hath made with you concerning all these words. The blood of the covenant. So remember just the short account that we're given here. Moses has peace offerings and sin offerings offered, oxen. And the blood is gathered up. Half the blood he puts in basins, half the blood he sprinkles on the altar. Then having begun the inauguration process, the blood sprinkled on the altar, he reads the words of the covenant, and the people respond in commitment, we will do everything you've said. And then he sprinkles the people with the other half. And this is the blood of the covenant. So you have this covenant-making ceremony based on sacrifice and the commitment of the people to keep the covenant. So this is what the author is referring to. I want you to notice that the inauguration ceremony that we've just read does not mention many of the things that the author of Hebrews mentions. In verses 19 and 20 of our passage, the author says, For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses and to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded to you word. The author of Hebrews has imported some things. No mention of goats in Exodus. No mention of water or of wool or of hyssop. Nor is there any mention in Exodus of the book being sprinkled with blood. That has bothered some people. But you see, you need to understand that the author here is very likely assimilating other aspects of Old Testament rites into the account in Exodus. All of this is very natural understanding. Though the mention of the book being sprinkled is not found in Exodus, there is plenty of Jewish tradition for that, that when the Holy Spirit gives to this author to mention means we can count on that tradition being true. It's not contrary to what Exodus says. It just supplements what we would have known in Exodus. We also have things in the New Testament that tell us matters that uh, you would not have known in the Old Testament account by itself. The Holy Spirit gives more information of a historical nature sometimes, too. But we do have um, Josephus and others that would back up this understanding of what happened. Um, the Bible says that Moses sprinkled the people with blood. Well, I mean, how did he do that? You, you can assume that he did that with wool and so forth in the sprinkling ceremony. Or what, that he dipped his hand in it and threw it at the people? I mean, he had to have some way of sprinkling them. And so it, although people try to embarrass us and say, see, the New Testament doesn't understand the old here, it's not really inerrant, I don't see that there's any conflict, it's just we have supplemental information. But now, apart from that, let's look at the main point. The people were sprinkled with blood, and then the book as well, just as the altar representing God's side of the covenant, God as well, his word is sprinkled with blood, and the people, they're brought into a bond and in this, being sprinkled with blood, they committed themselves to obedience. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, you'll notice that that's a concept that's applied to Christians as well. 1 Peter 1, verse 2, where Peter speaks of people being elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Just as Israel at Mount Sinai was sprinkled with blood, we as Christians have been sprinkled with blood. We're sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. 
And in so doing, we are sanctified unto obedience in the power of the Holy Spirit. Israel at Mount Sinai said, everything God says, we will obey, we will do. And that's an interesting parallel. Peter has this Mount Sinai kind of background there. He brings together the idea that we who are sprinkled with blood in covenant with God are committed to obedience. We're to be sanctified by that blood arrangement. Similarly, you notice in both um, Exodus 24 and in the quotation in Hebrews 9, Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant. And as we had occasion to say in previous study, Jesus at the Lord's Supper says, this is the blood of the new covenant. Or this is the new covenant in my blood. We, we get both of those expressions, one in Luke, one in Mark and Matthew. And so the similarities are vivid, aren't they? We are in covenant with God through blood, the sprinkling of blood. And even as Israel is committed to obedience, we must be committed to obedience. Well, now our author in verse 21 moves on. What has he said? He said, now, here's the point I'm making. No covenant with God without blood, without bloodshedding, without sacrificial death. And even as the Old Testament people were sprinkled with blood, we now are sprinkled with blood. We're in covenant. In verse 21, he says, Moreover, the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry he sprinkled in like manner with the blood. We move up a bit. Moses at Mount Sinai sprinkled the people with blood. But then after the tabernacle was completed, he did a blood sprinkling ceremony as well. And he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the vessels of the tabernacle as a means of sanctifying them or consecrating them, he sprinkled them with blood. Now we have another problem. You read the Old Testament, there's no mention of blood. Moses sprinkled these things with oil, we are told in Exodus the 40th chapter and Leviticus the 8th chapter. And yet again, we don't have a difficulty with biblical inerrancy if we think about it. For we read in Exodus 29 that the oil was mixed with blood when it was sprinkled on Aaron and his sons and their vestments. And so there's plenty of Old Testament precedent for thinking that the sprinkling with oil included blood in the oil as it was sprinkled as a means of consecration. Moreover, Josephus tells us that for seven days the tabernacle and the priest vestments were sanctified with the sprinkling of blood and oil. And so obviously there's a solid historical tradition on which our author is depending, in which the Holy Spirit is ratifying as we read that here. But now, what do we learn from all this? And this is an interesting history lesson, Dr. Bonson, but so what? What's the point of it? The author gets to the point in verse 22. What are we learning from these Old Testament illustrations? That under the law, everything is purified with blood. And we come back to it again. Say blood theology. The author will not give up on this. No covenant without blood. Even the old covenant had blood, had to have blood. Everything is purified with blood. You get the point? Blood. Actually, he says, almost everything. I may say almost all things are cleansed with blood. And apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission. The almost takes account of the fact that the author does know the Old Testament very well. I mean, against those who think he's just sloppy with the Old Testament text, he knows that there are some exceptions. I wonder if the people who criticize this author know the Old Testament as well as he do. He does. Did. I'll get it right. Do you know it? <laughs> How, what exceptions? What things were not purified with blood in the Old Testament? Um, there were certain vessels that were not purified with blood. Um, metal objects captured in war were purified in fire, it turns out. We read that in Numbers 31. And then there's two other exceptions. In Leviticus 15 and Leviticus 19, there are water ablutions, purifications with water without the mention of blood. But the point is, they're very rare. And the author is making a generalization that is pretty reliable when he says, I may say, almost everything is purified with blood. The Old Testament was not just fascinated or obsessed with, but it did focus on this idea of blood is necessary for purification. And so he lays down this principle, apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Verse 23 tells us that... Um, the articles of the tabernacle were copies of the heavenly things themselves. To understand this, go back to chapter 8, verses 2 to 5. Chapter 8, verses 2 to 5, where the 
author of Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest who has sat down at the right hand of God, who is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it's necessary that this high priest also have somewhat to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, seeing there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve that which is a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Even as Moses is warned of God when he's about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern that was showed thee in the mount. The author of Hebrews says that the tabernacle on earth was a shadow and copy of God's tabernacle, the very presence of God in heaven. And we should understand then that what was taking place on earth was but a, uh, a shadow of, kind of a miniature of, what was really taking place in the authentic tabernacle in the very presence of God. And so in chapter 9, verse 23, we read, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. The copies of the heavenly things are the vessels in the earthly tabernacle. They're copies. And they only represent in shadow form what really needs to be the transaction, what really needs to transpire before God himself, the very presence of God in heaven. So now understanding that on earth we have, as it were, a microcosm of the reality in heaven. The author has been driving home his point, no covenant without blood. Blood is necessary for purification. Without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. And verse 23 begins with these significant words. In terms of theology, I would tell you this may come close to being about as pregnant a phrase as you're going to find in the New Testament. He says, therefore it was necessary. If you've listened to everything I've said, if you understand this old covenant theology of blood, you know, therefore, you have to draw this conclusion. It was necessary that the copies of these things be purified with blood and that the heavenly things be purified with better sacrifices in these. If you follow my theology, he, the author says you cannot escape this conclusion. It is a necessary conclusion. We sometimes, when we talk about the law of God and the old covenant, draw a distinction between moral laws and ceremonial laws. And one of the reasons we do that is we, we want to make clear to people that not all the laws of the Old Covenant are followed in the same form as they were in the Old Covenant. We want to make clear that we don't bring animal sacrifices and we don't engage in temple service like Levitical priests and on and on and on. And so there's a category of, of laws which we believe we don't follow today in their outward form anyway and we, for which we have biblical reason not to follow, and they are called ceremonial. Now, that's probably not the best term for that category of law, but it is traditional, and we're kind of we're saddled with it now. Fact is, we draw the distinction between ceremonial laws that we don't follow and moral laws which we do, and the question arises, can Old Covenant ceremonial laws be simply dismissed as arbitrary dictates of God? Since we don't follow them outwardly today, the temptation, I think, in many people's minds is to think, well, God just arbitrarily laid down these principles, and of course they're silly, you know, don't eat pork, and you know, blood atonement, and a woman's unclean in her menstrual season, and on and on, all these things we don't understand, and, but we don't have to do them today, and so we kind of look at them as just, you know, God just voluntarily laid down these things without good reason, and then he took them back. That won't fit in with the opening words of this verse, will it? Therefore, it was necessary that the copies be purified in this way and the heavenly things with better than that. The ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, though it is true that we do not follow them outwardly today, and I would, wouldn't want anyone to go out here and misrepresent what this church is teaching on this matter, we don't keep the ceremonial laws in the way that the Jews did. Absolutely right. But what do we want to say about those ceremonial laws? Do we want to say they were arbitrary, just voluntary dictates that God could do one way, could do another? The ceremonial laws contained an underlying principle which is absolute. And what is that principle? What principle is the author of Hebrews in chapter 9 saying these ceremonial laws, 
taught us one of the principles. Not, it's not the whole of it, but in this case, what does he tell us about redemption? Joe? It must be made by exactly. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now I want to ask you about that principle. Is that valid today? Can anyone have their sins remitted today without the shedding of blood? No, not at all. Please don't get the idea that the Old Testament Jews had this bloodthirsty God, some kind of crude, uncivilized religion of blood. And now we're away from that, finally. We're, we're into the ethic of love and, and forgiveness and so forth. The author of Hebrews says, today, it's true, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Blood theology is our theology as New Covenant Christians, even as it was the theology of the Old. And my point is, though that pertains to ceremonial things, Levitical ritual and sacrifices and so forth, the principle underlying the ceremonial laws is still with us today. Give you another illustration just to make sure this is driven home to our hearts. In the Old Covenant, the priest had to go through what is just a remarkably tedious process of getting dressed to minister in the temple. The high priest in particular had to have just the right clothing on, he had to have a certain kind of breastplate and turban and on and on and on, and he had to have gone through, you know, uh, cleansing and all these, what we might consider ticky-tack details. What difference does it make? It's the thought that counts, right? That's what we'd say today. But God said, no, very, 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 very cautiously and in detail, this is the way you must approach me. Now, what principle do we learn from that? That God likes scarlet and blue better than he likes yellow and green? No. But we do learn a principle about what? You may not approach God on your own terms. Well, yes, and we do learn the regulatory principle of worship. That's right. But I think in terms of redemption, and in a broader sense, we learn that no one has the right to approach God just because he wants to. God says you must come this way. And there's a reason for why I've told you to do it this way. Now, we don't approach God with high priestly dress and all that. But we certainly don't approach God without a high priest, do we? Can we pray without a high priest today? No. That's exactly right. And so are we beginning to catch on? The ceremonial laws are not followed as they were in the Old Covenant, but their underlying principle is followed. We can't be saved without the blood of Christ. We can't come before God without the high priestly intercession of Christ. They are ceremonial laws, and I don't mind us calling them that and understanding why we do that, but I think we should not think that they were some kind of just little ticky-tack arbitrary things. There is a good principle underlying every one of the ceremonial laws. And so, as I say, significance is found in the author beginning verse 23, therefore it was necessary. Because of the ceremonial procedures of the Old Covenant, it was necessary. But then he goes on to say, however, the heavenly things in the very presence of God had to be purified or consecrated with better sacrifices than these. It never would have uh, been adequate for the Levitical procedure and the uh, blood of bulls and goats of the Old Covenant and that earthly tent never would have been adequate to just leave things there. If you're going to really achieve atonement in the presence of God, you need a better sacrifice than anything the Old Covenant offered. Some people have been bothered by the fact that the author says better sacrifices, plural, as though there are many. But you have to understand Greek idiom here. The plural is used for a category designation sometimes. That is, you refer, or some of you modern mathematicians might appreciate this, it's kind of like set language. A set is always defined as a number of things, but there may only be one thing in the set, but the set accommodates a plurality. And it's a way of speaking of a new category or a new set. And the author is saying there must be better sacrifices, or if we were to translate it into English idiom, we'd probably say a better kind of sacrifice, a better category of sacrifice than these was necessary before God. Probably the most interesting thing we're going to ask tonight, though, arises now. You might say, well, why did the heavenly things need purification at all? The things on earth were dedicated and purified with blood, but of course earth represents sin and alienation and, and God's judgment and so forth. Why in the very presence of God, who is so holy as to not admit anything unclean or sinful in his presence, why would those things need purification? Jim? 
Well, that is one of the um, one of the approaches would be to say that uh, heaven itself has impurity in it. Although I think maybe what you're saying, come to think of it, is the heavens, meaning the upper regions of this created order, are impure. But here, heaven means the very throne room of God. You do know in the Bible, there's the heavens and there's the heaven too. The heaven which is above the heavens. It's used both ways. Heavens means the sky, to use English idiom, up in the sky. But then heaven is also the throne room of God, which is not in the sky, literally. It is even above the sky, if we could put it that way. Although I don't necessarily believe in absolute space when I say that, Doug. But we'll get into that later. Now, why do the things in the very presence of God need purification at all? Some people would say because heaven has been darkened by God's wrath. There's something wrong there. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. That's just human imagination. The wrath of God is not an unclean thing either. So that doesn't help us. Secondly, some would say, well, Satan had to be dismissed from heaven still. He's the prince of the power of the air, and so he needed to be cast out. I don't think that'll make it. Others would say that the word purification really means simply inauguration. That is, that the blood of Christ inaugurated the covenant before God, that it wasn't a purification right at all. The difficulty is that in context, it obviously does mean cleansing in other cases. A popular modern idea is that the heavenly sanctuary being referred to is really the people of God, who before Christ came needed cleansing. And so he entered into the true heavenly sanctuary, into the presence of the Old Testament saints, and purified them. Well, that is a lot to say for it, because there is biblical imagery to be found elsewhere that says God's people are his tabernacle. Only problem is that's not the imagery here. <laughs> that's importing literary imagery from another author in another setting and imposing it here. Here, the heavenly things are the archetype for the earthly vessels in the tent on earth. And so it's really straining to try to make this people. And besides, Revelation 21:27 tells us that God doesn't allow anything impure into his heaven anyway. And so, again, the question is, why do the heavenly things need purification? I hate to disappoint you. Maybe you're waiting for, okay, Dr. Bonson's got some really neato idea that's going to do better than these. I'm going to suggest we shouldn't even try to answer the question because we're pressing for a precise parallel that the author never intended for us to have. All the author is saying is, look, something went on down here on earth that had its correspondence in heaven. And after all, when the author says that the earthly tent is a copy of the heavenly tabernacle, are we really to believe God lives in a tent in heaven? No, we're pressing, aren't we? It's like on earth, this is the way we would express a heavenly truth that goes beyond our ability probably to understand anyway, but it is not the point of the author to, to describe the heavenly throne room. And all he's saying is, whatever took place on earth has a corresponding theological reality in heaven. The purification that took place on earth was really fulfilled when Jesus fulfilled everything by opening the way of redemption before the very presence of God. But that there were unclean things that needed to be purified is not the detail that he's pressing for. He's pressing toward what? Better sacrifices were needed to complete what the earthly shadow was all about. Maybe I can help some of you who are struggling with this. Jesus tells a parable. He tells a story, and he gives a lot of details in the story. Many of the details are given simply to make the story a story. And then, he, and then he draws his conclusion from his story. Now, some people have been tempted, after they interpret a parable of Jesus, to go back and look at all the details. The people sat down to sort out the fish in this parable. Now, what does the sitting down stand for in this parable? Well... You see, that's pressing for a detail that God never intended. The story was given to express certain points, and then the elaboration, the details, were for the sake of the story. In the same way, I hope this analogy helps. It's not precisely the same thing that's going on here. The author of Hebrews is telling us something took place on earth that was a shadow of the redemptive reality in heaven. 
And what took place to accomplish the fulfillment of the earthly shadow took better sacrifices. But when he talks about the things in heaven being purified by better sacrifices, he doesn't mean we should look for the details on earth in heaven. And so I'm just going to stick to the main theological point. There had to be better sacrifices for the new covenant to open the way of redemption for us. And so let's come finally to the question of our hour. Why blood? Why sacrifice? Why all this emphasis? No blood, no covenant. No blood, no sacrifice, no redemption. It is necessary if we are redeemed. It is necessary if we are in covenant with God that there be blood shedding. Why? John? Because when we rebelled against God, you shall die. Death is the consequence of rebellion against God, consequence of sin. Kent? Well, I was just saying that that's somehow the way that we resolve the paradox of how mercy and justice can both be good things. Is that making sense? I mean, God being all merciful and all just, if he's just, he can't let some, the, the covenant breaker into his kingdom. And so, in order to be merciful, he has to figure out a way to do it. It is true that God's mercy must conform to the pattern of his justice. The question is, why does his justice demand blood? Why blood as a way of redemption? And I'd like to follow a line of thought that um, will not be new to some of you anyway, but let's, let's take each of these uh, premises as a step leading to our conclusion. First, the Bible teaches that sin calls for separation from God and from his favor. Any problem with that? Sin is the opposite of God's character, so those who are sinful must be separated from God. And then what is God in the Bible? Well, he's a number of things, but what I want to bring up now is God, according to the Bible, is life and the source of all life. Real quickly, let's look at some verses. John 5.26. John 5.26 says... For as the Father hath life in himself, even so gave he to the Son also to have life in himself. The power and the principle of life are inherent to God. Life comes from him. Uh, or look at John 1 verse 4, as a matter of fact. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Or consider Acts 17 verse 25. At the Areopagus, Paul says, Neither is God served by men's hands as though he needs anything, seeing that he himself gives to everything life and breath and all things. And so sin calls for separation from God, and God is life and the source of life. Sin, therefore, means separation from what? Life. To put it very simply, the wages of sin is death. Exactly. Romans 6.23 we first learn of this in Genesis, as John was alluding to, Genesis 2.17. What did God say originally when he made the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? That man shouldn't eat of it, and in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Ezekiel 18.30. The sinner must die. And so we get very clear indications of this fundamental theological principle. God is life, and those who are alienated from God by sin, therefore, cannot have life. They must die. Now, let's add another step along the way. Turn to Leviticus 17.11. Leviticus 17.11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by reason of the life. God is life. Sin separates us from the source of life. Sin brings death. Life is in the blood, and therefore... Sin calls for death, meaning bloodshed, the giving up of blood. 
And therefore, only blood shedding, which is to say only loss of life, which is to say only death, can atone for sin. Now, what do we learn in this theology of blood? I think this is very important. Some of you will not have studied, as, uh, as others perhaps in our group tonight, different theories of the atonement. One theory of the atonement says that when Jesus died on the cross, it was basically a pathetic act to bend the will of his father, to say to his father, I love these people so much. Look what I'm willing to do. Doesn't it hurt you to see me in pain like this? It's kind of like, uh, can I not influence you to change your attitude toward these sinners by what I'm going through? That makes it a pathetic a vain gesture, right? Kind of like the lover who is jilted, who jumps off the bridge to, to show how much he really loved this woman that gave up on him. You know, kind of a, a futile gesture, hoping that maybe in this dying moment that will change the person's attitude. Another theory is the moral influence theory of the atonement, that Jesus died on the cross to influence us, to make us say, oh, he must really love us a lot to go through that, so we better be good little boys and girls. That's what the atonement is. It's a way of influencing us. Are any of those theories of the atonement adequate to the biblical account that I've just given you? Look at Leviticus 17.11 again. It says right there, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement. Do you notice that blood sacrifice is not man's gift to God? It's God's gift to man. Write that down if you're taking notes. Let it sink in, because my guess is in the time I have left, I will not be able to, to really convince you of how significant that is. Blood atonement was never God being pleaded with by a human gift of blood. That's the uncivilized version of the atonement that many people give us. Man comes and offers these animal sacrifices, this blood, and says, God, aren't you satisfied? Don't you like that? Let me bribe you. God says, I gave you blood upon the altar. This is the way of grace. It is the way of God's initiative. And moreover, we learn that it is the appropriate price or payment. I've given it to you for atonement, for, well, basically, payback, the price of liberation and redemption. I've given it to you for atonement. It is the only appropriate price. And you know why it's appropriate? Your sin separated you from me, which separated you from life, which called for death, which calls for blood. Please turn tape over at this time. So if you wish to be right with me, the only way you can do it is to shed blood. God gave it. Man didn't come up with this idea. And God did it because he said, you need to understand that sin calls for death. And only death will atone, therefore, for what you have done. In light of that, just write down these passages. I think you, hopefully your hearts will be softened and you'll be very grateful for these expressions that are not primitive expressions in the New Testament anymore. The Bible says we are justified by Christ's blood, Romans 5.9. That we are purchased with his own blood, Acts 20, verse 28. That we are propitiated by faith in his blood, Romans 3.25, we are made nigh, brought near to God, by the blood of Christ, Ephesians 2, verse 13. We have been loosed from our sins by his blood, Revelation 1.5. And then finally, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, 1 John 1.7. Notice how often the New Testament relies on that Old Testament concept. It's the blood of Christ, though. Christ's blood justifies us, purchases us, propitiates us, brings us near to God, looses us from our sins, and cleanses us. Everything the Old Testament theology of blood was about pointed to the death of Jesus Christ. And he had to shed his blood because he had to give up his life. His life in exchange for us, what we call substitutionary atonement. And so what the author is saying is in Leviticus, excuse me, in Hebrews chapter 9, is that it was necessary 
for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with the shedding of blood. But the heavenly things, that is the reality of redemption, could only be accomplished with better sacrifices, a better kind of sacrifice, the very blood of Christ. And then he explains it, verse 24, For Christ entered not into a holy place made with hands, like in pattern to the true. Christ didn't just enter into a tent on earth. He entered into heaven itself to appear before the face of God. And you want some precious words to go home and think about? Notice the author says he entered into the presence of God for us. Those last two words are awfully important to me. When Jesus went in there, he didn't go in just to make a point to vindicate himself. He went in there for my sake. He went in for us on our behalf because he is our advocate. He intercedes to the Father for us. Verse 25, nor yet that he should offer himself often. He didn't have to do this over and over again as the high priest entered into the holy place year by year and not even with blood his own. Because if Jesus had to do it like that, verse 26 said, he would have had to offer himself, suffer many times since the foundation of the world. The old Levitical practice called for repetition, repetition, repetition. Jesus didn't follow that kind of sacrificial procedure. The better sacrifice was offered once and for all. And when did he do it? Not since the beginning of the world, the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages hath he been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. When did Jesus die upon the cross? The author of Hebrews says, at the end of the ages. Now I'm going to change um, gears here real quickly, pressing to my conclusion of finishing in the next eight minutes. This is amazing. The author has a view of history which is not at all akin to what we would call the dispensational view of history. And I can make that point clearest by reminding you that according to dispensationalism, we live in an age right now, many would say a parenthesis actually, but we live in an age now that will be succeeded by another major age called the millennium before the eternal age is introduced. The, no matter what the details are and the differences between dispensationalism, uh, dispensationalist, this much is clear. They all say there's another major age coming before the end. The author of Hebrews says Jesus died at the end of the ages, which is to say whatever age we live in now, it's the last one before the end. Isn't that right? The author of Hebrews says we're in the final days. Now, the final days is a long time, just like driving to Los Angeles may take you a long time from entering the county line to get to City Hall, but it, it's, it's true that all of that is part of what it is to drive to Los Angeles. The end times is not just a point, it's a period, but Jesus died in the end times. We have some other um, expressions like that in the New Testament that are of interest. First Peter 1.20, Peter says, who was foreknown indeed before the foundation of the world, but was manifested at the end of the times for your sake. Peter says, at the end of the times Jesus has come. And then 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, another expression like that. 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, verse 11. Paul tells us in that place, now these things, he's referring to a list of things that happened in the wilderness. Now these things happened unto them by way of example, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages are come. Paul says we live in the end times, and those things written in the Old Testament were written for our benefit, those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Christ's first coming then was at the consummation of the ages, or if you want to put it this way, at the climax of history. Now that Christ has come and has appeared and is taking care of sin, we're ready for eternity. What's delaying it? Can anybody tell me why it is Jesus doesn't come back tonight? Or actually, why he didn't come back just two days after he rose from the dead and say, okay, that's the end of human history? Because it's kind of like leaven and dough. It just Well, he is giving time for his kingdom to grow, that's true, but what does the growth of his kingdom mean? How does his kingdom grow? Preaching the word. 
Well, I, I don't mean what do we do to help the kingdom grow. His kingdom grows by, Willie? By the salvation of, by the salvation of sinners, that's right. If God does not consummate history tonight, it's because God is what? Merciful and patient. And he intends to bring in the full number of his elect. And so Jesus was manifested at the very end of time. That's what the author says. The climax of history. It's already come. And God now is just gathering in his people. And then he's going to call it to an end. Christ's first coming was for the purpose of comprehensively to put away sin, verse 26 says. He put away sin by nullifying its force and absorbing the consequences of sin. He died in our place. But actually, the author of Hebrews speaks of three appearings of Christ. Verse 26 says, Else must he have often suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages hath he been manifested, or hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There are two other appearings of Christ referred to here. Tell me what they are. One's real easy. David Arnold? Where do you read of that? That's right. So Christ also, having been once offered to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time apart from sin to them that wait for him unto salvation. Jesus is going to come again. Please remember that verse when people suggest to you that when all is said and done in the New Testament, there is no teaching of a second coming of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, who will say that? In our day and age, there are people who are realizing how much of the New Testament refers to Christ's coming in judgment upon Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And many of these people have fallen into the grievous heretical view that all of the references in the New Testament about the coming of Jesus Christ refer to A.D. 70. And that maybe the Bible doesn't teach a second coming of Christ in the traditional sense at all. Well, this verse is one of the first ones I'd go to to say, no, he will appear a second time for those who wait for him. But although he calls that the second appearing of Jesus, in terms of the mentions, in terms of the way he mentions appearings of Jesus, it's the third. Because there are three appearings of Jesus. One in the past, Jesus appeared once to put away sin. There's another appearing called the second appearing where he will uh, come in judgment. But there is a third appearing spoken of that's taking place right now. Do you see it? Okay, Jim? I know the verses, but from That's right, verse 24. But into heaven itself, now to appear before the face of God for us. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus once appeared on earth to put away sin. He now appears before the presence of God for us. And then he was going to appear a second time, although it's the third use of the word appear. He's going to appear a second time for the sake of those who are waiting for him and await in judgment. Now, I want to draw a couple of theological conclusions that are very important. I'm tempted to wait another week and talk about this, but I have to keep a promise to you. So, Verse 27, inasmuch as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this comes judgment. Many times Christians are thrown by Eastern religions that teach reincarnation, that we live a life and then if we have good karma, we come back in a higher form, either socially or a more advanced creature, and of course we live a bad life, we have bad karma, we come back in a lower form. I always tell my students at school, I think they're going to come back as aardvarks. <laughs> if reincarnation is true, you guys are set to be aardvarks, that's for sure. Okay. Reincarnation suggests that men live lives, they die, they live a life, they live a life, they live a life, and so forth. How can we refute that from the Bible? Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto men once to die, and then judgment. It doesn't say, die, be judged, come back, try again, die, judge, come back, try again, so forth. Once you die and you are judged. Okay, so remember that. Um, let me see. I don't, um, I don't recall it, but it, it, it's certainly possible. I don't, I don't know everything about this book. I want to point out also, if we can hurry along here, that it is appointed to men to die. It's unavoidable. Romans 5.12 says that through sin, 
death entered into the world through the sin of Adam, and therefore death came upon all men because all men sinned in Adam. And so death is unavoidable. Physical death is the outworking of spiritual death. It's a shame that we as Christians often think of death as just when the body stops functioning. Death is what's inside a person right now because he's spiritually alienated from God. And the physical outworking of that is God lets his body be separated from living. And then what happens to a person? They are judged and the second death, their soul, finally separated from God into the torments of hell for all eternity takes place. Uh, Jeff, real quick. Um, the Bible verse that might have been mentioned is uh, perhaps Psalms uh, 89, 48. What man can live and not see death or save himself from the power of the grave? Okay, thank you. What, and what's the uh, passage again? Um, 89, 48, Psalm 89, 48. Psalm 89, 48, okay. So it's appointed to men once to die, but now the author makes an interesting point. Verse 28, likewise, so also Christ, having been once offered to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time not to deal with sin, apart from sin. Jesus is not going to come and offer a second chance to anybody. When he comes back again, it's going to be the day of judgment. But I love this. If I, if I can end on this point. Jesus is going to come back in judgment. We know that's the conceptual point he's making. Jesus appeared once to save sinners. He's going to appear another time to judge them. It's appointed to men once to, to die, and then they are judged. Jesus likewise came once, and he's going to return. But instead of playing out the parallel and saying he's coming back, and it's going to be a real bad time for sinners, you know what the author says? Although it's true, it's the day of judgment he's referring to. He will appear a second time not to deal with sin, apart from sin. He will appear a second time to them that wait for him unto salvation. I wonder if that describes us. I know we're out of time, but I would really like you to get that into your hearts. Does that describe you as someone who's waiting for Jesus to return unto salvation? In 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, the Apostle Paul speaks in these words, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me at that day, and not to me only, but also to all them that love his appearing. I'm afraid that um, for all of our proper emphasis upon reforming culture and changing lives and building up the church, that too often our, our minds are earthbound. We're really attached to this age. And we mustn't lose that dimension in the Christian life that loves his appearing. Jesus is going to return one day for those who are waiting for him unto salvation. Because you know, it doesn't make any difference how good things get on earth. How happy you may be, how wonderful your marriage may be, how good your evangelistic skills are developed, how many blessings you see from God, how well the church program is going, how sanctified your culture may be. We all need to learn to say what Bernard of Clairvaux said. Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts, thou fount of life, thou light of men, from the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled to thee again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do love your appearing, and we are anxious and eager for that day when you will come back again. We are waiting for you to do that unto our salvation, where all sin and all misery will be done away with and you'll wipe every tear from our eyes and we'll be brought to live in a in a age and in a realm where righteousness dwells how we thank you for your appearing we thank you that you first appeared to put away sin and that you were willing to do that so graciously and and selflessly that you would have your own blood spilt for the sake of those who really should have died for the sake of sinners like us we praise you for that appearing. And Lord, we thank you that you are now appearing before the face of God the Father, even now. For us, for our sake, you have gone before the presence of the Father, and you are interceding to him. Indeed, we couldn't even pray this prayer if you were not doing that this very moment for us. And Lord Jesus, we do love your appearing again when you will come to bring us home to glory to be with you. Do change us because of this study tonight. 
give us a greater appreciation for the theology of blood of which we've learned. Help us to see what marvelous love you've expressed that you would lay down your life for us. How we thank you that your blood was shed. And we do pray that we would be willing now to give our lives back to you, not by any way of barter, not in any way that we might merit your love and your favor, but simply as the most heartfelt and consistent act of gratitude that we can imagine, that since you bought us with your life, our lives belong to you. For we pray in your precious name. Amen.